All right, Romans chapter 8. I don't know how, I don't know how much we're going to accomplish this morning, but we're going to try, all right? Romans chapter 8. There's a lot of subjects we have discussed so far in Romans chapter 8. As I say, I, I say this every time I get ready to teach the book of Romans. This next section is going to be the most difficult. And then we turn the page. This section is going to be the most difficult. And you listen to other people talk about, uh, I, I know, I'm crying too about it. It's, it's hard. Um, so he's like, why are we back at church? What has happened? Okay, I'm so used to sitting at home. Okay. <laughs> Do what? Oh, that's, well, I mean, that's, that's good, uh, I guess. All right, I, I don't know what to say there. Yes, we have abusive children. Hap- no, I'm not joking. Just a kid fell over. It's okay, okay. But, uh, so, yeah, it's probably hard for the kids to get used to as well. So, but Romans chapter 8, back to Romans chapter 8. Um, I know that when you listen to a lot of other people preach in the book of Romans, I mean, I've listened to, I don't know how many sermons on Romans now, uh, you know, trying to prepare for this series and work on it, just trying to, because I always try to see kind of how does most people approach this, and you know, then I always then try to approach it. Or I try to, I try to look at what other people ignore, right? And I just don't know how people can study Romans and act like it's so simple, it's so easy. Um, yeah, I guess if you don't ask any hard questions, it's easy. And it, it, it's always amazing how things can be easy if you don't ask hard questions. But we, we have some difficulties here. So before we go back through some of the difficulties we've looked at in this chapter, you have a task in front of you. All right. Open up to Romans chapter eight. All right. Look at Romans chapter eight. Start skimming through Romans chapter eight. Just start skimming through it. Okay. I know this doesn't make for great uh, audio, but that's okay. Just start skimming through Romans chapter 8 and see if something jumps out at you. I'll just let you skim it. If you're listening and you're driving your car, I'm I'm sorry you can't do this, but we'll tell you what we're going to find here in a minute. Well, Well, I hope that everyone comes up with the same answer. I hope. Just start skimming Romans chapter 8. I would read it, but if I read it, then I'm going to probably end up emphasizing what I want you to see, and then I'm giving it away, and I hate doing that. Okay, the word law jumps a lot. Okay, good. That's good. Okay, sin, flesh. All right, that's good. That's good. Those are all good. Ah, there we have it. What word? All right, someone go through and start counting how many times the word spirit is used in Romans chapter 8. Now, everyone's grabbing their phones. (laughs) They're going to get to say, I'm just going to look this up in that way. Okay, (laughs) Romans chapter 8. How many times is the word spirit used? Well, now, we know we're going to get disagreements here. Okay? Everybody's going to give a different number, but that's okay. And if anyone's listening online, they can, uh, they can put it in the chat, and Seth is looking at the computer. He can see what people say. How many? Okay, Diane's got 21. Okay. Okay. 15 verses. Used multiple times, okay. okay. Yeah, Romans 8. Okay. 
15 verses that contain the word spirit. That's used multiple times. Yeah, there's more than, uh, yeah. You were, you were saying, wait, there's more than 15 verses in my Bible? Okay, right? <laughs> yeah, your mom uses an abbreviated one, okay? <laughs> Being the Pope, she decided some of those verses don't count, okay? And again, people listening online, we're joking, okay? Oh, okay. All right. It's probably going to be close to 19? A 19? Okay. 19? Right, right. Yeah. All right. So 19 times the word spirit is used. And most of those spirits, what do you think it refers to? Because uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay. Very important. All right. So if we're in a chapter where the Holy Spirit is talked about at least of a good chance 19 times. I won't be completely dogmatic, but 19 times, around 19 times. And how many total verses? 39 verses. That's a lot of verses, but that's still a lot of times that one thing is mentioned that many times. Right? So that seems to emphasize that one of the major points that Paul wants to make in this chapter would have to deal with what? The Holy Spirit. That is what we're going to have to figure out. Now, what is an absolute... Now, I'm going to ask you this question. What is an, what are the, a foundational, fundamental teaching of Christianity in regards to the Holy Spirit? A fundamental teaching about the Holy Spirit that Christians teach and for most part, everyone believes. They may, they may believe some variations about it, but everyone seems to believe this about the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, keep going that direction. She said sealed, right? You're talking about one of the, uh, the, the, the things the Spirit does. But before we can be sealed with it, there's something, a, a fundamental doctrine that every Christian believes. There we go. And we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We believe as Christians that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, here's your job. Find me some scriptures that you would use to prove or teach that doctrine. That we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You can go ahead and start looking it up. I know you're like, man, I've been out of church so long, I don't even know how to do this stuff anymore. Okay, I know. I tried to do the same thing when we uh, the teaching online, trying to get y'all doing it, because I don't want you to get out of practice at that. I'll help you. Um, go to 1 Corinthians. Oh, wait, we, taught, we studied that book before, right? I think it's chapter 6. So start looking at 1 Corinthians 6 and see if you see something there that would talk about, uh, that would kind of be like, yeah, this shows that we are dwelt with the Holy Spirit. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Do what? 1 Corinthians 6. People listening online go, this doesn't sound like a typical sermon. It's the typical sermon for here, okay? You're like, you go to that church and they make you look everything up. I know. 
Wait, Seth? Oh, 1 Corinthians 3. Okay. Well, did he give a verse? All right, Will, uh, we, we need a verse. He's probably driving his car. I, I think he listens to us when he drives home from church, so he's probably driving the car texting, so that's probably, you know, probably shouldn't do that. 316, all right. What does it say? All right, 1 Corinthians 3, what, uh, verse 16, right? Let's read, I'll read it uh, on, and thank you, thanks, Will. That's bad when people not in this church are better than the people in the church. I, mean, I got to do... I, all right, I gotta do. I gotta do better. Yeah, I, I may have given you the wrong, uh, sent you the wrong direction. All right, First Corinthians three verse sixteen. Um, uh, know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God does what? Dwelleth in you. All right. Now this this is very important. Hang on, I'm going to look at one other passage. Um, First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter six verse nineteen. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God. You are not your own. All right, so we got two passages in 1 Corinthians that gives us the idea of what we as Christians believe. That we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this doctrine so significant? I want you to think about the significance of this doctrine. All right, I'll, 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 I'll try to, I'll make it simple for you, right? Instead of trying to put you on the spot, I'll, I'll make it simple. All right, you go to work, right? And you work maybe really close with someone, right? We'll call the person Tom. You work with Tom. Tom's not a believer. You are. Now, because you believe you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, there's something very different about you and Tom. Tom doesn't have what? God dwelling inside of them. You do. Now, this raises lots of questions, right? Questions that should trouble you. Questions that should bother you. If we have God living inside of us, and the people we work with, and the people we know, and maybe people in our family, they don't have the Holy Spirit, what should be the difference? How do we understand this? Some Christians believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit in us should have a dramatic difference, right? Some would say, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? How would some Christians argue, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? Speak in tongues. You have to speak in tongues and have some kind of experience. Then, you know, you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, which happens, they believe, subsequent to your salvation. You get saved, then you get the Holy Spirit, right? And you know it by having an experience. But... But for many of them, they can speak in tongues, fall on the floor, laugh, do whatever. But guess what usually happens? They're not much different than the people at work who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, we know plenty of people in the charismatic world who's fallen into all kinds of scandal. Amen? Yes? So what... What is the difference? What does it do? What, what, what is significant about this? Paul, is, is he not been drawing contrast in Romans? Yes? We even looked at, we looked at four contrasts, remember? Yes? And is there a contrast between those who have the Holy Spirit? And what we're going to do, we're going to start today. We're going to, we're going to do a little work in Romans 8, but we're going to do a lot of work on what it means to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to have to deal with some controversial issues, right? Because think about it. 
and your Christian life, what were you taught was the result of you having the Holy Spirit inside of you? What were you told? Hey, now that you have the Holy Spirit in you, this should be the result. What were some things you were told? Okay, you're a new creation, and they usually meant that to mean what? In a practical way, not in a positional way. All right, you're a new creation. What are some other things that you're told about the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do for you? All right, convicts you. You should have a conviction over sin that Tom doesn't. Right? Does that always prove to be true? Clearly not. Clearly not. Because there's Christians who are engaged in activity. And, now, and so then what do we end up doing? Well, anyone who doesn't appear to have the right kind of a conviction, we say, not saved. Right? That's always our way out of everything. You're like, well, wait a minute. That goes against my theory. They're not saved. They're not saved. And again, if you continue that, you're, one day you're going to look in the mirror and you're going to say, you're not Oh, wait, that's me. Okay. And then that doesn't work very good. Okay. What are some other things supposedly the Holy Spirit does for you? Power. Power. Isn't that the... Power, right? I mean, there's all kinds of hymns about the power, right? right? We have the this Holy Spirit power. What, what do we do with that power? I remember uh, First Baptist Church, Tuscola, we were, the teenagers were going somewhere, okay? And I, you know how I always like to play the devil's advocate, right? So everyone here is, you know, Baptist, right? So then I started play, playing the game. Like, I started making these arguments for, like, the Pentecostal, kind of view of the Holy Spirit, right? And I remember some of the teenagers getting mad at me, which I was just doing it on purpose just to see if they could come up with a good argument. But I kept trying to make this argument and they didn't really have good arguments and just got mad and said I was dumb. But I'm like, you know, you're the one falling for the game because I'm just messing with you. But okay, but the point is, is if you go with the Pentecostal view, they really believe that with the Holy Spirit comes power, some kind of power. How many of you know people who are Pentecostals and all that power didn't really show up in their everyday life? I mean, I went to school with girls who were Pentecostal. I didn't, there, there was, there was some, there was, they, they, they didn't have that kind of power. I don't know what kind of power they had. They, they didn't have any more power than I had, but we convince ourselves, right? So what does it mean? We all, we, we have to acknowledge that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit because the scripture is dogmatic about that. What, is, what, it, what becomes the problem? What does that entail? What does that mean? What does it do? How does it show itself? That, that's the kind of thing we have to figure out. So go back to Romans chapter 8. Right? And I almost want to just detour right from Romans right now and just get into this discussion. But we, and I've got my notes here. We'll get to this in a minute, but let's at least put this back together with Romans. Okay? Romans chapter 8. All right, we're going to go quickly. Right? Everybody ready? Here we go. Okay, we're done. Okay, here we go. No. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay. Now remember that part in the King James is not in other translations. We can get into that. But just remember, there is therefore now no condemnation. Why? What was significant about that? What is significant is Paul's been talking about all these problems with the flesh. Right? And now he says there's no condemnation. Which means that clearly my no condemnation has to be dependent upon something other than myself. Because Paul in the previous chapter talked about the things he wants to do. Remember, and, and I kept stressing this over and over. Remember Paul said this in Romans 7.25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh... Why is that verse so significant? I'm gonna, I know I'm going to drive people crazy, but I just don't think you can move forward until we get 725 down. 
What is so significant about 725? What is so significant about that verse? I'm just going to have, I'm going to repeat that verse like 80 billion times. It seems, and I think we can all agree, that he seems to be saying what? There's, there's these two realities that exist at the same time. One, what do we do with our body and our flesh? We sin, but what do we do with our mind? That's seeming to say that there's, some, there's one part of me that focused on God, but there's another part of me that, and he, and he seems to act like they both can be true. But even though these both are true, what does he say in chapter 8, verse 1? There's no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because I'm in whom? Christ Jesus. Everybody remember that? Okay. All right. And then, and then it says who walk uh, not after the flesh, but after the spirit. But it's clearly, and now remember, not all people believe that, that those words even belong there. But even if they do, I walk not after the flesh in what way? It can't be uh, with my flesh because what did he just say in chapter 7 verse 25? He serves the law, he serves with his flesh, he serves the law of sin. So if I'm not walking after the flesh, it's got to be I'm not walking after the flesh how? In my mind or by my position. That's the only way I can get, this makes any sense. But after the spirit. Now for the law of the spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He's contra- uh, he contrasts two different things there, right? The law of the spirit with the law of sin and death. Everybody see that? For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin and the flesh. So how did the sin problem get taken care of? Through what Christ did. Correct? Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh. How was the righteousness of the law fulfilled in us? Remember we had a long discussion about this? Can't be in what I do, because I'm never going to fulfill the righteousness of the law in what I do. It's got to be fulfilled in the imputed righteousness to me. All right. Verse 5. <clears throat> For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now, again, we're back to the spirit. Those are in the flesh, the flesh. Those in the spirit, the spirit. Now, the, I'm going to argue Romans 7.25 seems to be saying that both of those realities can exist in whom? One person. I know it reads in Romans 8 as if, no, 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 you either are this way or that way, but Paul, I, I, 725 has to be, you see why I keep going back to 725? I, I don't, it was like so many preachers, when they get to chapter 8, they forget Romans 725 existed. I can't forget Romans 7, you know why I can't forget Romans 725? Because I live it every day. And everyone else here should say, not because I do it, but because you do it. Okay, Amen, you're right, you do that, but no, you do it as well. Right, everybody got that? All right, let's continue. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. Indeed can be. So then that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, we cannot please God in the flesh. But guess what? Are we still not in the flesh in some way? Yes. How are we not in the flesh? In our mind or spiritually, right? Now, what, what does he do in verse 9? This becomes the key. We are not in the flesh. What are we? In the spirit, if so. How are we in the spirit? If so, be that the 
Spirit of God dwell in you. How are you in the Spirit? Because you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's how you're in the Spirit. God is inside of you. Now, if God, if, the, if I'm not indwelt with the Holy Spirit, what does the verse say? If I don't have the Holy Spirit, what does the verse say? I'm not, I'm not a Christian. Everybody see that? Right? It, but, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So here's the, so here's the key. Um, let everyone listen to me. If you're a Christian, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. If you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then are you in the flesh? No, no you're in the Spirit. Now, is that talking about a practical reality? It can't be talking about a practical reality because what did Paul just say in Romans 7.25? Then what does he do with his flesh? Serves the law of sin. So what does it mean? If I'm in the Spirit and the Spirit is in me, that means it has to be referring to my position. I am positionally in the Spirit. But where do I currently live? Two realities. What are the two realities? My positional reality and my practical reality. I, I'm going to continue to emphasize this. But we still have to deal with this very important fact. Practically, what is different with, for me than any person who's not a Christian? The Spirit of God is what? In me. We've got to figure out what this means, and we've got to figure out all the, uh, 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 all the possible ideas. I've got, I've got uh, James Montgomery Boyce over here on this table. He's got his ideas on what it means. I have, um, I don't even know who wrote this, um, Wilmington's Guide to the Bible. He's got his idea of what it means to have the Holy Spirit. I've, I, we could go from book after book. Everyone's got their idea. Hey, now that you have the Holy Spirit, here's what it means. Now, what it means positionally, but what does it mean practically? Right? Everybody got that? So I want you to write down on your paper, what does it mean practically that I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean practically that I'm indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Does anyone here deny that as a Christian we don't have the Holy Spirit? I hope you can't, don't, because we've been told in 1 Corinthians that we are now what? The temple of God. Correct? 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, correct? What does Paul say? If you don't have the Spirit, you're not one of his. Again, what's the verse? I want everyone to have this verse down. 1 Corinthians, or, or Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, Paul is going to try to explain what it means that we have the Spirit in the following verses, but we're going to expand it beyond Paul to really, dig, to really, really dig into this. Right now, I want and, and so what did you write on your paper? What does it mean practically? Do you indwell by the Holy Spirit? Now, just if just think, you can write this down if you want. Just ask yourself. Prior to this moment, right now, prior to this sermon, if someone would have asked you this question, hey, what does it mean that we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? What would you have told them? Yeah, what would, what, if they say, okay, what does that mean practically? What would you have told them it meant practically? Right? Okay, I saved it. Okay. 
Okay, right. Now, that's the one thing we should be able to agree on. That's that, but that doesn't have much, that, that has a spiritual ramification. But to my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, like, okay, I have the Holy Spirit in me. Okay, uh, or let's, let's say, I have the Holy Spirit in me. Emma doesn't. Does that mean I can swim faster than her? Okay. Hey, how do you know? Okay, I, okay. I can run faster? I, I, I don't know. I had a commander who always thought that, you know, when any time we were running, she would always like, hey, you can do all things through Christ. Hey, you've got the Holy Spirit in you. And I'd be like, you go ahead and run. I'm going to walk and drink a Dr. Pepper. Okay, goodbye. Right? Because, I, no. That, uh, what, did, what did you say? He missed what you said. About what thing? Oh, he, he, didn't, he didn't really. He, they, they, they focused on the practical ramifications is just, we, they know they're saved. <laughs> okay, that, that's what they know. They, they, right. And he's not going to lose me. And that, and that is true. That's what, that we're going to definitely focus on that one. But we've got to figure out what it means in a practical way. And again, if you've got 30 Christians in a room, what do you think we're going to get? Well, probably about 100 different answers. I mean, how many, some of you have got family members who are Pentecostal. They would, they would go all day on what it means to have the Holy Spirit, right? And probably what, what language would they use? They would act. And they would focus on power. Speaking in tongues, power. Uh, uh, th- now that you have the Spirit, you can understand the Bible better than the person who can't, right? Hey, I mean, and, and what's crazy is I've talked to those, those I mean, I, and I know I, I sometimes I can be rude, but sometimes those charismatics at work, I would be like, so you've got the Holy Spirit and you can understand the Bible in me better than me. Well, I don't understand because clearly you can't read because I don't know what's going on. Like that verse doesn't mean that. They're like, what are you talking about? But they believe... It does. Everyone has an idea, but nobody can agree. And wh- so what, what's the one thing we have to be careful of here before we ad- advance, before we start looking at this? What's the, one, what's the one danger in trying to answer this question? One major dan- danger. What do you think? A major danger in trying to answer this question. A lack of Honesty. Right? If you're going to say to everyone, I have the Holy Spirit, now I have the power over sin, and I can do this and I can do that. But if you deep down know that you sin, you just got to be honest with yourself. Or you start trying to live a life that's not honest. Does that make sense? In fact, uh, it's like a fig tree, it's like a fig leaf kind of Christianity. You're going to cover yourself up in figs, fig leaves to make yourself look good, but the reality is you're just a, you know, a broken sinner that you're just dressing up trying to pretend that you've got some power you don't have. You can't claim to have a power that you don't clearly demonstrate. Right? If, if I try to tell everyone that I can lift 500 pounds, right, all you have to do is say what? Show me. And if I can't do it, Right. Well, when Christians claim now that we can, we, I, w- I was just listening to a sermon before people got here in, in the church. And, and, and one of the things he's, the, the pastor said this morning was, you now have the power to obey God. Well, then guess what? Show me that. But not all the time. Yeah, I mean, he didn't even add a clarification, but I guarantee if I pushed him, what would he say? Well, not perfectly. Well, then I don't have the power. So we've got to figure out what this means. So are you ready to dig in? We'll see how far we can get. I know that was a big introduction, but I want you to see this. All right. So we've established that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a fundamental teaching and that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, what is true? Yeah. 
You're not a Christian. Everyone agree with that? All right. Okay. Now, what we're going to have to do is try to see how this plays out. Now, let's throw out this idea. When an individual, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw out a lot of concepts, and then we're going to work through the concepts, all right? That's the way I'm going to do this, all right? So, before you write it down, you may, you may get ready to write it down, like, oh, he's being dogmatic about this one. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to be dogmatic about anything, all right? But we've got to figure out what it means. Agreed? We've got to figure out what it means. You may not want to figure out what it means, but we have to. So, Here's a concept. Don't write this down yet, all right? Here's the concept. When an individual accepts Christ as his personal Savior, the Holy Spirit gives the believer the life of God, which is really his very nature. So in other words, the fact that we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit means that we now have a new nature. Now, these are the scriptures they offer. All right, here we go. Titus 3.5. Don't write this one down yet. All right, are you ready? Titus 3.5. This one, I don't know how well this is going to help us, but we'll look at it. Titus 3.5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This would seem to talk about regeneration or having spiritual life. All right, so let's just, let's go with that idea. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you, this means you now have spiritual life. You have spiritual life. You have sp- the Spirit of God inside of you. You now have been spiritually resurrected from spiritual death into spiritual life. Can we all agree that seems to be a, a pretty fundamental biblical teaching? Yes? What scripture would you use to speak of that you've been resurrected or that you have spiritual life? Book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, I believe it's verse 1. I could be wrong. I'm just going from memory. And you ha- he hath quickened, who were what? Dead and trapped. How are we quickened? Well, what does Titus say? Titus 3, 5. Not by the works of righteousness which we have done. Are we, are we uh, resurrected? Uh, by the works that we have done? No. How are we uh, resurrected? But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That in this washing of regeneration, what, what seems to be two things that are involved? Typically, washing, water, we usually connect that with what thing? Some people connect it with baptism. What is another thing we can connect it to? The Word of God. Why? Because how is he going to wash or clean his bride? Through the word of God. That comes in the book of Ephesians, right? Everybody remember that? Okay. All right. So the washing of regeneration would be scripture and then the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost would be a part of this regeneration. So having the Holy Spirit seems to indicate that we have what? Spiritual life. Now that means our, our, our character that we made up, Tom, Tom would not have what? So, what should, be, what should be the difference between someone who has spiritual life and someone who doesn't have spiritual life? Uh, 
Do say say it. Okay, now that that's always dangerous when we say that. All right, so so let's let's see if we can find another answer other than the way we live. All right, what should be some basic things? Okay. What well, what did you say right bef- before the first thing you said? You used a different word. Right before uh, she said something. Awareness and awareness. Okay. Seth, you have one. Okay. Okay. Alive to God. Awareness of God. Now, the reason I'm trying to use these kind of terms because we got to. What does it mean? Like, if it, I, let's go with the idea. We're going to go agree with this idea, um, and maybe this is not the typical one it goes through. But I think this idea that we are regenerated, that the Holy Spirit coming into us gives us life. He is the source of life, right? Hey, hey, so, so we are now to, alive to God. What does it mean to be alive to something versus dead to something? Just, just think of it, in a, forget spirituality, forget spirituality, forget spirituality completely, okay? Okay, if you're alive to it, you desire it, interested in it, seek it out, think about it, right? But if you're alive to something specific, that means you have, there's something about it that, that it, there's, you're, you have a desire, an interest uh, and an and a, and a attraction to it, correct? We can name a lot of things here that some of you are dead to. Some of us in here may be alive to, right? There, everyone here has those things that you are alive to. You're interested in it. You get excited talking about it. You have a passion for it. You're excited about it. Or, or some of you don't have, maybe not express it that way, but you still like it. Yeah, and other people will be like. Oh, Whatever. Whenever Kate comes down, right? She comes down. Next thing you know, she's in the living room, turns on the TV. Ooh, new episode of The Bachelor's coming on. And I'm like, oh. Oh. I'm not just dead to it, okay? I, I have a... Every time I walk in the living room, there's some woman on there crying. That's all they do is cry on that show. I'm like, stop crying, okay? Stop it! She's alive to that show. I, what? No, I don't care about The Bachelor. I don't care about anybody, okay? I don't care. But th- she's alive to it. I'm not. Now, th- now, we cannot, can we understand it from that terminology? That makes sense, right? Now, that's a little easier to understand than saying, well, we're going to live different, right? Now, it will manifest itself in practical ways, but it may manifest itself, I mean, I mean, if you're just, I mean, you know the difference between alive something and dead something. It may not always manifest itself that you're going to be more godly than the other person, but it's going to show up that you have, you're aware of it. You're like, you should be bothered when you're not living according to it, right? A desire for it, an interest in it. You care about it. You think about it. You talk about it, right? If someone's alive to something, they they talk about it, correct? Correct? Right? They talk. Right? I know. Every, no one's used to being at church anymore. Everybody's phones are going off. Like, like, I don't even know. I'm usually just sitting at the kitchen table doing whatever I want. Okay, I don't even listen to you when you preach. Okay, no. but uh, so yeah, I think we can all understand that. All right. So now they talked about nature. They didn't really. They didn't frame it this way. We're going to break it into two parts. Being a dwell with the Holy Spirit seems to indicate the existence of spiritual life. Would everyone agree with that? Yes. 
right? I, I think we can agree with that, all right? All right, now, let's go with, let's go with the next passage uh, uh, here. They have 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1, 4. 2 Peter 1, 4. Everybody there? We're going to run out of time here. 2 Peter 1, 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, this one doesn't mention the Holy Spirit, but it mentions the what? No, it mentions something specific. Divine nature. All right. They're making the argument that the way we have this divine nature is because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Now, this gets into a big, we could get into a big lengthy discussion here, right? So, is it the Spirit in me that provides the new nature, or is it actually just like a new nature created inside of me? Like, that, that, I mean, I've never thought of it that way. Maybe you have. Like, the Spirit in me, that's where the divine nature is. It's not like a new nature inside of me, but it's the the Spirit in me, which is that new nature, because the Spirit would have its own, I mean, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? Yes? So, uh, a divine nature, yes. Divine attributes, yes. Divine characteristics, yes. So that is inside of me, so there is the divine nature. So what does it mean that I have a divine nature inside of me? This one becomes a little bit more difficult to figure out how we work this, correct? Now, we, we understand that the Holy Spirit would give life, but if the Holy Spirit in me is... Is connect, let's just say the Holy Spirit in me is connected with the divine nature. I know we could get into all kinds of discussions here, but let's just go with this. If I have a new nature in me, Paul seems to indicate that even with this new nature, the old one doesn't do what? Clearly it doesn't seem to go away. Some Christians teach that it does. They call it what? The eradication of the old nature, right? I wish the old nature would be eradicated because then I would never have the desire to do what? Sin. Clearly that doesn't exist. So Paul seems to indicate that even with the divine nature, the old is still present. But we have a divine. So what should, it, what should be the main, probably what should be two characteristics of having a new nature inside of you that Tom doesn't, that you work with? What should be two realities that flow from a divine nature? Okay. A new desire to do right or to, to serve God. A new desire. And what's another one that I think is very much tied to this? Okay, avoidance is going in kind of the direction I want to go. Mm-hmm. I oh, know that raises a whole lot of questions. That raises a whole lot of questions. Now, that that divine nature is is not connected to the uh, corruption of the lust, right? Because it's the Holy Spirit, right? So, how we play that? But let's let's go with this two ways. Divine nature should mean a new desire, and it should mean a new conviction, right? A new conviction. In other words. 
you should feel bad for things that Tom doesn't feel bad for. Right? Does, does that mean you're better? No, it just means Tom doesn't feel bad for it. And you feel, in other words, Tom comes, run, come, Tom comes running into work and he's like, oh man, I'm five minutes late. I'm sorry, man. Traffic was so backed up. It was crazy. It was so backed up. Okay. And he doesn't even feel bad that he just straight up lied. All right. You hopefully, when you come run in, you don't want to get in trouble and you may say, yeah, traffic was backed up. But hopefully when you walk away, that, I just lied. I just, hopefully, you feel, and hopefully, hopefully, the conviction would make you go back to your boss and say, hey, the reality is I woke up 15, 20 minutes late. I, I wouldn't get, if there wasn't a car on the road, I was still going to be five minutes late and just tell the truth. Now, sometimes, it, sometimes we feel the conviction. We don't go back. And, okay, yeah. Now, now we, we don't go back and say, hey, I, 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 we don't sometimes make it. But there, that, don't you think that divine nature should at least be uh, uh, those two things? A desire and a conviction? So, uh, so far, what have we seen? The reality of the Holy Spirit in us should at least two, two things. What are the two things? Life and what? A divine nature. All right, let's see if we can at least throw one more in, all right? We'll see where they go here, all right? Now, listen to this. This one's interesting. They're going to draw a correlation here, and I think this is pretty interesting. Remember uh, in 1 Corinthians, it talked about that we now are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Everybody remember that? Okay, all right, listen to what is said here. The fact that the believer's body is likened to the temple where the Holy Spirit lives helps us understand what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is all about, The word temple is used to describe the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum and the Old Testament tabernacle structure. There God's presence would appear in a cloud and meet the high priest who came once a year in the Holy of Holies. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest brought the blood of a slain animal, sprinkled it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. On this special day, God granted forgiveness to the priest and his people. Today, there is no Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and the animal sacrifices have ceased. The believer in Christ has become the inner sanctum of God, the Holy Spirit. As the believer has been sanctified and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, the believer in Christ becomes the habitation of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a cool correlation, right? In In the temple, in the tabernacle, there's the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, that's where the blood, so the Holy Spirit is inside of us, and we are sanctified, set apart for God, and we are forgiven, and we have been saved. All right, okay. That, I think that's, that doesn't give us any practical thing. That kind of deals more with the, that the Holy Spirit's presence there demonstrates what? That I've been forgiven, that the blood has been applied, that, that, Christ is there. So I, that's more, we're looking more for the practical implications. Everybody understand why I'm focusing on the practical? Because no one argues about the positional. It's the practical where the, argue, the, the dispute comes into play. All right? Now, some will argue about the uh, pos, uh, positional because they say you can lose it, but that, we obviously reject that outright. It just, it doesn't even make any sense. Okay? All right. So let's, let's go through this. All right? Now, listen to what they say. As the Holy Spirit lives in the believer, he brings about some life-changing 
results. Now, this is where it comes down to. Because you have the Holy Spirit, according to them, and and we're going to go through a number of different ways of looking at this and see if we can figure out the truth. According to them, it should produce life-changing results. In other words, your life should be completely different than Tom's life. Now, we 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 all want to believe it is. I argue that it may be different only in the types of sin, but it's not different in sinning. We just change the type. We just dress it up, right? Like, like Tom may come to, the, to a party drunk, you know, dr- doing who knows what. We would come to the party and we just may not be drunk, but we still have our own gossip, slander, judging people in an incorrect way, whatever, all the different lust, all the things that may be internal. We internalize the sin. Right. Right. I think that's why the, the first two kind of answers at least some of the difference, right? Life... And what else? Nature. Life and nature. And the nature shows up in two ways. Desire and conviction. Right? Life. There's spiritual life there. I'm alive to the things. Tom doesn't care. Like, Tom's like, hey, what are you doing tonight? Hopefully at some point you would tell Tom, oh, I'm going to study my Bible. I'm going to listen to a sermon. Hopefully. Right? Uh, and Tom is going to be like, what are you doing that? There should be. It, it, I'm going to church. Why? Right? The, the dead, the person without spiritual life doesn't get it. Right? The, like, that's the, that's the thing. And sometimes, I think sometimes those kid, kids raised in a Christian home, at some point they should wake up and realize, I don't have a desire for any of this. Because you're dead! Okay? You're dead! There's a, and that should make you go, well, if I'm dead, that's not good because that means, oh yeah, that means an eternity separated from God. And then you should start crying out to God for mercy. But you get the idea. You can see the deadness. I mean, it doesn't take long to figure it out. Now, sometimes it's sad that I feel like I feel the deadness. I felt deadness when being around other Christians. You're like, uh, does anyone want to talk about anything about God? Okay, no. All right, never mind. But that, that's always bad. But th- those are practical. Now, let's see. They want to see life changing. We'll just look at this one. They give two scriptures. Are you ready? Titus 3.5. They already gave Titus 3.5, but let's give back to Titus 3.5. Let's see why they quote this one here. Right? Let's go back to Titus 3 5. And when you, what you're going to see is no matter how many different books we look, look at, they're going to go to the same verses over and over and over and over again. All right? Titus 3 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to this mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Okay. We've already talked about uh, the washing and the regeneration, and I do agree that regeneration refers to life. Should that be life-changing? It should be changing. I just don't know if it's the way we sometimes preach it. Does that make sense? Let's see if they've got a better one. Um, they, go, they say, John chapter 3. All right, let's go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I don't know if this one's going to be big, a big help, but let's look at it. You know this, this one, right? All right? 
John chapter 3, this was the man, uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the, uh, the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There's water and Spirit. That goes with Titus 3.5. Correct? Right? So, and so that's the we believe that's the word. And we believe that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel uh, not that I said unto you that you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Bottom line is, everyone is born of the Spirit. God does it. We don't do it. This talks about being born again. Uh, there's life. Correct? There's life. So this one... This, there's nothing there that screams life-changing. It, it, it screams life-changing in the sense that I go from death to life, but we always try to make that in a very practical way, right? It's practical in the sense that we have life. So far, they haven't given us anything different than what they've already given us. We have life, and what else do we have? A new nature. Right. That, that, let, let, they're gonna, they also throw in this statement. Are you ready? Um... Okay, uh, we'll, we'll give one more. I, th- I think this one is helpful. Go to Romans chapter 8. We'll just look at this one. Uh, they, they, they say some more here, but they don't, really, they don't really help us at all. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. Bring, we'll end back in Romans 8. Romans 8, 15 through 17. We'll stop with this one. Romans 8, 15 through 17. Everybody there? What does Romans 8, 15 through 17 tell you about the Holy Spirit and something practical that it may bring about? Okay. According to Romans 8, 15 through 17, Diane just said it. I'll read it. Romans 8, 15 through 17, For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is the way they, they, they write it. The indwelling spirit confirms to the believer that he belongs to the Lord as, as an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. So what do they say is a practical result of having the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit should give confirmation that we are a child of God. It should, it should have us cry out what? Abba, Father. In other words, we know that God is our Father and we cry out to Him. Now this one, this one is problematic as well. Why? Why is this one problematic? It sounds good practically, right? Hey, how do I know I'm saved? I got the Holy Spirit inside of me. It makes me cry out, Abba Father. What is the danger of this one? Why is this one so problematic? Well, so by this argument, how do you know you're saved? Hey, I know I'm saved. I'm okay with God. Well, you have people who have all, who, there's some major problems there. This one is problematic because this is very what? What would be the word? Uh, 
Doesn't start with an O. No, it starts with an S. Subjective. Very subjective. Because right now we could, we could, you know, we could get, we could bring 50 people into this building and say, okay, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, uh, tell me about Jesus Christ. Well, you know, he was a good guy and, you know, I think he did a lot of good things. He seemed to really understand who God was. Uh, wait a minute now. Uh, how do you know you're saved? Well, I just know inside. Well, that, that's subjective, right? It's, it's this one. But this one is, this is one of the supposed things of being uh, uh, dwelt with the Holy Spirit. The problem is that's so subjective. I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm saved. Now, this and a lot of people have problems. A lot of people explain this one away and say, well, the way you know you're saved is you got to look at your life and know that you did a... The only thing I know is the only way I know I'm saved is i got to look at what Christ did. Because sometimes inside of me, are there times inside of you that you didn't feel saved? Okay. Uh, at least there's some people here saying amen. Okay. Yes. And there's times you may feel like, hey, I'm good. But in reality, you weren't doing so good. Okay, right? That, that, that's very subjective. I, I'm not a fan of this one. That's what the text says, though. That's what the text says. So go, let's go through these. Number one, what's the first possible practical implication of weaving and dwelt with the Holy Spirit? Life. We have life. We've been resurrected. By the Holy Spirit. He's involved in that re- regeneration. Okay, Number two. A new nature. If we, if we connect the new nature with the presence of the Holy Spirit. okay, And we could get into a discussion there. But we'll just go along with it. And number three. Confirmation that we are a child of God. Right? Those are the three major points. We had some sub points under number two. But those are the three major points. Right? And what would be. Yeah we'll just go with those three. We'll just go with those three so far. Uh, is, that, is that helpful? I don't know if it's helpful. Right? I don't think, see, and I know what you're used to. You just come, you, well, not, you're not used to because you've been here. But in most churches, they would just say, hey, you have the Holy Spirit, and it means one, two, three, four, five. And everybody says, amen. And then they walk out, and then they never bother to go, well, wait a minute. If that's true, then why do I do this? And if, I don't know why people don't ask those questions, okay? If I'm going to be told something is true, I hope to see evidence of its truth, I don't know, before I get home for lunch, you know, when you're screaming at the kid in the back seat, like, shut up, don't talk, and, and, and you're yelling at your wife, and, and, all, and all the stuff that can happen in a family from driving from here back to Abilene. Okay, at some point you're like, man, we, uh, this family seems to be void of the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? What just happened, okay? Why are we, why are we trying to kill each other? Because they're... they're Romans 7.25. Romans 7.25. Someone just tell me what it says and we'll stop. Two realities. realities. With my body, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. But with my mind, how does that work? It seems the only explanation is I have the Spirit in me, which does bring about that desire in that life, but there's something going against it. I, I know that people, I know there are Christian theologians who say this is, that's creating a duality and it's just not correct, it's not true. But I, I, that duality is what I experience. So, all right, we'll, 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 we'll go through this again. But, and, and, the, and make sure you understand, the reason we're doing this is what has Paul established to be 100% true at this point in, in Romans? That we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 
So we've got to figure out what that means. Uh-huh. Okay, what is this question? Ooh. All right. Okay. No, we're not going to be able to answer it now. Okay. Because, and I know uh, I should be, I, I, but I, I, I can't answer it now because it requires work. Go to John 16, 8. Everyone here in the church, your job is to find an answer for will. Okay, no. All right, here we go. John 16, 8. All right, speaking of the Holy Spirit, how do we know? Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient, you, expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the, comfort will not, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, he asked that question, is that, is that the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin or is convicting us. I'm going to go with the idea that, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin in this way. All right? And I'm just going to throw this idea out there. If you talk to psychologists in psychology, they say the number one thing that they have to treat people for is this overwhelming sense of guilt. Over, overwhelming sense of guilt. Even people who, are, who reject all of Christianity they're still just usually this, uh, somehow they feel guilty of something. Now they may try to cover it up, and they may, and the way they sometimes cover it up is they get really mad at any moral standard that you, stop preaching to me! And you're like, I didn't say a word to you. What, what are you, ta- why are you getting mad at me? I didn't, I didn't preach. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Well, I, I, I'm thinking that you need to back up because we need to be social distancing is what I'm thinking. Okay, uh, that like, what, calm down. I think, the, the world is very aware of some internal guilt that they can't explain. And they go to psychologists to try to explain it away. And they say, well, you know, you need to love yourself. Don't beat yourself up. No one's perfect. And they give you all these like little cliches, you know, to, to make you feel good. But the reality is you can't get rid of it. I don't think you have to do a lot to convince people that, they, that they've done something wrong. I don't think you, I think you may have to convince them to acknowledge it, but I think deep down they know it. I think we all know we're a mess. So I think it's a convic- there's, a, there's this Holy Spirit that at least convicts people that something is not correct. They, they know that there's, they, they don't, they don't even live up to their own standard, much less any other standard. And I think they're aware of a standard that, well, the law of God in their heart, right? Yeah, so I think it's, I think that re- uh, applies to the world. I think. Right, that, that's my answer there. Okay, all right. Any other questions? Did, any other questions on the computer, Seth? No. All right, good. Thanks, Will, for participating. That's good. And uh, well, we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we pray that as we continue this over the next week or two, that we gain a correct understanding of what it means to be and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. We have to acknowledge the reality of it because your word says that that's true of everyone in this room who, has, who is a Christian. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. What that should look like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday is something we want a correct understanding of. And we don't want a fraudulent thing that we convince ourselves is true when we know it's not. Help us understand this truth. Help us be able to apply this truth and live according to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...